Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning again. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. We're thankful that you joined us this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, open it up. If it's not already open, to John chapter 17, whether that's digital on your phone or if you have a paper old school Bible, uh, either one, um, we would love to have you track with us. And we have been walking through the Gospel of John for over a year and a half now, and we are coming towards the end of the Gospel. We will actually finish it up through Easter. That will be the last uh, bit of finishing through the Gospel of John. And we find ourselves in John chapter 17. Um, and it really breaks down into three kind of categories. And last week, Luke came for us and preached John 1 through 5. I hope you enjoyed that time. He has been um, such a good friend to me, even in the midst of this transition for me stepping into this lead role here at Redemption Peoria. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed him and his preaching last week if you were here. Um, that's the first section. What we're going to be looking at today is the prayer for the disciples, uh, verses 6 through 19 in chapter 17. And then next week... We'll look at Jesus' prayer for the church. And again, the context of this is Jesus is caught in this intimate moment praying to his Father. The next chapter, chapter 18, we're going to see he's going to be betrayed and arrested, heading toward his ultimate death on the cross. And the more I've been reading this and soaking it and meditating in it this last couple of weeks in John 17, um, there's a particular weight to this chapter uh, I don't know if you feel that, if you've read it before, but uh, I really want us to pause and really take in, like I was talking to Jim the other day as we're talking through the text and working and going like, I don't even know if I should preach this. It feels so heavy. It feels like you're listening in to this intimate conversation because what is happening again is Jesus is caught praying to his Father. We know Jesus prays, but we get to see it modeled here in John 17. It's interesting for us as readers to go, look, Jesus isn't telling me to do anything. He's not instructing his disciples in a certain way. They just happen to be listening in to this conversation. I think the reason that it is in the Gospels and that God records it for us is for us to pay attention to the power of modeling. And you guys know this. You know this as parents. Like, we can say all the words we can say, but really our kids are picking up on how we live. Right? You've heard the phrase, it's more than, it's caught than taught. One pastor said it this way. He said, as leaders, we teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And I think that's really true. You can say all the things with your words, and those are good things, but really how you're going to lead somebody is your life. That's what they're going to see. And so we get to step into this space in John chapter 17 and listen to Jesus pour his heart out to his father as he's getting ready to go to his death. What can we catch from these verses? Here's what I think we can catch as we listen to Jesus pray. Four things. If you're taking notes, write these four things down. The first thing that we're going to see, Jesus praying to his Father, and specifically about the disciples in this section, we're going to see him talk or pray about delineation. We're going to see him pray for protection for his disciples, for jubilation for his disciples, and direction for his disciples. Delineation, protection, jubilation, and direction. The first one, delineation. If you're not familiar with that word, to delineate is the process of describing something in very accurate detail. So there's no question 
about is it this or is it that? You're delineating it to go, okay, there is no questions about what this is. I have delineated and you now understand because I've described it in great detail. We're going to see Jesus do this about his disciples in just a second. If we were in a conversation and we started talking about food, started talking about favorite foods, and it somehow led to what is your favorite dessert? And I said, you know, my favorite dessert is this dessert with a cookie in a skillet and this ice cream on top. And if you came, right, if it, Sandra knows what I'm talking about, if you came to my house and you showed up with a pizza cookie from Oregano's, I would enjoy it, but that's not my favorite, right? You would need some delineation from me. I would have to talk about there's versions of this dessert that I can enjoy, but it's not my favorite because the ultimate supreme pizza cookie known as the Pazuki, the original from BJ's, is my favorite dessert hands down. And for me to understand and explain and unpack to you what that is, it's this cookie, and my favorite is the salted caramel right now. It's so unbelievable, and it's not all the way cooked in this skillet pan, and some ice cream is on top of it, and those things have to happen to make the pizuki. Now, you could come, you could bring me a scoop of ice cream, and I could enjoy that, and that could be fine, but that's not my favorite ice cream. You could bring me a cookie, and I could enjoy it, but it's not my favorite dessert of all time. That's reserved one spot, the pizuki. If you haven't had it, who hasn't had a pizuki in this room? Shame on you. <laughs> Especially you, Peter Anderson. You need to check it out. Anyway, that's what delineation does. I'm explaining to you in detail so you don't have any questions walking out of here. You're going to go, what did you learn from church? Well, I learned his favorite dessert. That's not, that's not, hopefully you learned something more. But at least you know because of the process of delineation and me explaining to you what it actually is, you understand it, it's clear. Does that make sense? Let's watch what Jesus does when he's talking to his father about his disciples. Verse 6, John 17. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come through them. What is Jesus delineating here to his Father about specifically the disciples, these men that have walked with him? He's saying, these men are disciples. Why? There's two things that we pick up in these verses, verse 6 specifically at the end, and verse 8. What is a follower of Jesus, a disciple? He's saying, listen, you've given these men to me, and I have given them your word, and they have obeyed it, verse 6. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and have obeyed your word. Then verse 8, if you jump down, they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. What is Jesus saying that the Father has given him this word, and that he has given it to the disciples, and the disciples have believed him? Well, what is the word that Jesus is talking about that he has been given from the Father? It's clear throughout the story of the Bible, and we see it really clearly in the Gospel of John. It's everywhere about that this idea that the story of God goes through the entire Bible, the very beginning in 
Chapter 3, something happens to humans. They decide not to choose God. They go their own way, and sin enters into the story of the Bible. There's a separation, and the whole time people are waiting for this Messiah to come and fix the problem. And Jesus is showing up on the scene in the Gospels and saying, it's me. I'm the only one that can fix the problem. I am the only one to solve the issue of sin. This is the word that the Father gives to Jesus that he gives to his disciples. And there's two things that delineate other people or the world from the disciples. Again, we already mentioned it. One is obedience and the other is belief. And a lot of times we want to separate those two things in our context. We want to say, well, there's belief and then there's obedience. But as we see Jesus here delineating for his disciples to the Father, these two words go together. You cannot untangle them. Because if you have obedience without belief, you live this self-righteous life, which is what the Pharisees are doing in the Gospels. And if you have belief without obedience, it leads to kind of this cheap grace of really going, are you really believing if you're not obeying? Jesus is clear that as he prays for his disciples that obedience and belief are the necessary ingredients to make a follower of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you always believe and you always obey. Clearly, we disobey all the time, which is why Jesus had to do what he does on the cross. And clearly, there's times where you don't believe. There's seasons where you're going, like, God, I don't, are you even real? And that's okay. But the process of Jesus saying, these are my disciples, is there's a consistent pattern. He's saying, I have come into this world. I have given them your word, and they have believed, and they have obeyed. They are my disciples. Have you believed, and have you obeyed? A lot of times I'll have conversations with people, and they'll talk about Jesus. Jesus comes up, and it's like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus is my Savior. And then they have belief, but they don't have, it seems, any obedience. You look around, you go, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 said, look at this tree, and you can know the type of tree it is by its fruit. And you go, well, do you really believe? Do you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Because that's what he's doing in the entire Gospel of John. He's doing things and he's saying things and he's forcing people to make a decision. What do you say about me? What do you believe about me? Jesus delineates in this moment who his real disciples are. And then he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. It doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love the world. Jesus loves the world. He dies for the world. But in this moment, he's specifically praying for this group of disciples that are with him. And if he is praying for this group, if they do find themselves in this category, they're listening on to Jesus pray to his father, then he goes on to say, these are the things that I'm going to pray for them. There's three things. Jesus prays for protection, for jubilation, and for direction. Let's look back at the text, verse 11. It says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scriptures would be fulfilled. Why do the disciples need protection? 
Now, we need to do a little bit of an imagination experiment this morning. I just need you to get in the shoes of the men that are hearing this, the 12 that are hearing this prayer that Jesus prays to his Father. You realize that Jesus has yet to go to the cross. And these 12 men, again, imagine you are one of the disciples for a minute. Maybe you're a tax collector, maybe you're a fisherman, and all of a sudden you've been waiting, you're sitting in this culture, in this society, and the Romans have oppressed you, you don't like your life, and you know there's a Messiah that's supposed to be coming. You know there's someone that's supposed to come and make all things right again because your life is not right, the culture is not right, you're not feeling good about certain things. And then all of a sudden you hear about this teacher, you hear hear about this rabbi named Jesus out of Nazareth, and you hear he's doing certain things, and he's saying certain things that you go, is that really him? Could could this be be the one that's going to fulfill the prophecy that we've been waiting for, that God has promised us to make all things right again? And then you get face to face with him, and you see him do stuff you've never seen before. You see him heal people right in front of your eyes. You see him do miracles, turning water into wine. You see him walk on water, and then he calls you to follow him. He says, I want you to drop whatever you're doing. I want you to come follow me, because this is it. Can you imagine a disciple going, okay, like the excitement, the rush of that, and then the whole time, Peter's like, tell him, tell him, Jesus, tell him this is, this is you. And Jesus keeps going, it's not my time. It's not my time. He's still doing all these things. He's making all this ruckus with all these people. He's really making the religious leaders mad. But if you're one of his clique, if you're one of his disciples, you're going, yes, this is it. This is it. This is going to happen. And then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We saw earlier in John. And he goes, it's time. How are you feeling as a disciple in this this moment? You're going, okay, finally, we've been waiting. This is going to be it. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. There's going to be peace. We're going to be on the top of the food chain again as the nation of Israel. All things are going to be made right again. But you keep hearing Jesus talking about like he's moving towards his own death. And I imagine if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, yeah, I don't understand a lot of what you're saying, Jesus, but the miracles are amazing. (laughs) And like the death thing, I don't. I don't, I'm just got, that's like on the back shelf. Like, I don't know what that, I don't know. He's talking about he's dying again. I don't know what that means. But what he's about to do, his kingdom is about to come. And then they start jockeying for position, right? We saw that. They're going like, who's going to be on your right? Who's going to be on your left? They're so excited. And then they hear Jesus praying. They still think he's going to Jerusalem to overthrow. They hear him praying. He's praying for protection. Like, why do, we need, why do we need protection? We're about to take over. Maybe there's some forces against us. We need some protection. Why, why would he pray for jubilation or joy? And why would he pray for direction? You're with him in his intimate moments. All of a sudden, he gets betrayed by one of your circle on the inside. Then he gets arrested. And then he's headed to the cross. I got to be thinking if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, okay, Jesus, this is long enough. Okay, like, Like, do your thing, wipe them out, like, but you're letting yourself get arrested. You're letting yourself get beaten and whipped and mocked and made fun of. 
And you got to start to wonder at what point are the disciples going, wait a minute. Like, did I push my chips in too early? Is this not really the Messiah? Because there's other people that have claimed to be the Messiah. There's other people that have even been crucified. And you're sure going like, I thought it was him. Man, I thought for sure it was him. I saw him do things I heard from his own voice. We had conversations. And then all of a sudden, what happens? He dies. He's dead. He's really dead. Can you imagine the emotional whiplash they must have been feeling in those moments of going, I picked wrong. I was wrong. What, what do you do with your life at that point? That's the context that Jesus is praying for them in. They have no idea what's coming. And Jesus is praying for them. Just as with my kids, we have three kids, they're all in high school this year. When my oldest started high school, I was praying for specific things for him in the midst of his high school experience that he didn't know were coming. He hadn't done high school, but I have. And so I'm praying for certain things in his life, even though he's like, I'm fine. What do you mean? This is what we do. Let's look at what Jesus prays for, for his disciples. He prays for protection. Verse 11 Again, I will remain in the world no longer. He's going to be with the Father. He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we were one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe that, your name, uh, that the name you gave me. None has been lost except the doom to the one of destruction that the scripture would be fulfilled. Obviously, he's talking about Judas in verse 12. How do the disciples moving forward have protection? Because even when Jesus raises from the dead and interacts with them for those 40 days, then he leaves them again. And they need protection because they're going to be against the world coming at them. Jesus unpacks a couple chapters earlier where he tells them, listen, the world hated me. It's going to hate you. You need to be protected. And I'm not going to be here to protect you. At the time, Jesus was there to protect them. Now he is gone. He gives his spirit as a way of protection. His word, his name, and his spirit. I love Acts chapter 4. We don't have it on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can flip there. Let me just read this piece, and I wonder if the disciples were going back to this prayer, remembering their prayer for protection, that Jesus is begging the Father to protect them by the power of his name. Context of this is John and Peter just heal this beggar at the temple that has been begging there for years. And the religious leaders, they don't like it because it takes their power and their control from them. So picking up in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, let me just read it to you. If you have it, you can read along. If not, just listen. It says, And they were speaking to the people. The priest and the captain in the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because what they were teaching, the people, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They had thought they took care of Jesus. He's dead, but he's apparently alive. Uh, verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and uh, Caphias and John and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. Verse 7. 
And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. By what means this man was healed? Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no, other, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we are to be saved. Verse 13, and when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Let's stop there. We can continue reading, but in this moment, what do Peter and John rely on for protection? The name of Jesus. The name of Jesus and his spirit. They're arrested. They could be fearful. They could go, oh, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. We better not tell them what they don't want to hear. But they go, no, 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 no. It's Jesus. And his name protects them in the midst of their trial. If you keep reading the story. Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. The second thing we see in the text is that Jesus is praying to his father for their disciples' jubilation. Verse 13, John 17 says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Jesus knows that his disciples in the next several days, months, years need protection. He knows that his disciples in the next days, weeks, months, years, they need joy. They're going to need jubilation. Again, can you imagine that moment when you realize that the person you thought was going to be the Messiah dies? You have no joy. You have no purpose. And Jesus is saying, Father, give them joy in the midst of their circumstances. How do you have joy in the midst of those circumstances? I think verse 13 and verse 14 are connected. Again, look down at your Bibles. It says, so they, they may have the full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word. I think one of the primary ways we can have joy and experience joy and the disciples could experience joy was knowing they had the word to center them. I know last week I had a night where, man, I just, my mind was just racing. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Like I, I hit my head on the pillow and it was a great day. I had a great day. And then all of a sudden these ideas and these thoughts and these conversations just started flooding in my mind. It felt like out of nowhere. And I'm praying. I'm going like, Lord, I don't know what this is. I don't. And I feel all turned around. And I just had to get in my Bible, honestly, and just go, okay, I'm hearing all those voices flood. What is actually true? This is true. Let me center myself right here. Let me take all those voices and put them under a grid of what is true in the gospel narrative, in the Bible, what God says is true. And the craziest thing happened. I felt joy. It doesn't always happen that quickly. I don't want to assume if you're struggling with something that you can just, this is like a magic book. That's not the case. 
but we need to center ourselves. And Jesus is praying they have joy, and he has given them the word so that they can have joy and find it again. I can't imagine, can't imagine, some of you in this room, you have served in our military and specifically even served in battle. Can't imagine the case. But if I was in battle and I was overseas somewhere and I was fighting and just thinking about the loss and the confusion and just going like, man, how much longer do I have to be out here? Like, what am I even fighting for? Like, how much longer is this going to go on? And then all of a sudden, what happens if you get a letter from your spouse? And you're reminded the reason you're fighting. You're reminded that somebody loves you, that they care for you. It gives you some push to go on, to live another day, to fight another day. And Jesus knows what his disciples are about to go through. He says, give them joy and give it to them in the power of your word. Jesus prays for protection for his disciples. He prays for jubilation or joy for his disciples. And then he prays for direction, this last one, for his disciples. Why do his disciples need direction? Again, imagine how they're feeling and what they're about to go through in the weeks ahead and the months ahead. And when you're turned around, when you feel upside down, Something you need is somebody to come and help you set your feet and set your course because you feel like, I don't know what way to go. Did you ever do that relay race, maybe like at field day in PE or whatever, where one of the ones was the dizzy bat race? Did you ever do that? Where like you have to go like this around the bat like five times and then you have to run? I just did it once and I can barely stand. You do it like five times and then you run. Well, it's really helpful when you have one of your teammates after you're dizzy kind of set your feet and kind of help you push in your direction and then kind of continue to go, oh, no, 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 you're going this way. No, 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 you're going the wrong way. You got to go that way. Can you imagine how dizzy the disciples must have felt and going, what do we do? Verse 15, Jesus praying to his father again. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. Now again, when we're typically praying for others. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room and you pray for others, typically, at least for me, my default mode when I'm praying for others, even in this last week, has prayed for them to get out of whatever circumstances they are in. It's usually the direction that I'm praying when I'm praying for someone else. I want to help them escape their current circumstances. It's interesting, Paul, in all of his letters, in the New Testament, he writes 13 of them. One of them, Ephesians chapter 1. Let me just read you a snippet of it. Again, it's not on the board, but, um, but just listen to, to how he's thinking in his direction about the church. He says, I kept asking God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may you give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his uncomparable great power for us who believe. 
Do you know that in all of Paul's writings and his prayers for all the church, and there's lots going on with the church that Paul writes about, he never once prays for their circumstances to be changed. Not once. Does he pray for them to escape their own current circumstances? What does he pray for? Even in this prayer that I just read, that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would know you better. I pray that their eyes of their hearts may be enlightened, that they may know the hope to which they have. Jesus, in this moment, he's saying, listen, I'm not trying to take them out of the world, even though the world is going to hurt them. I'm praying for their direction. I'm praying for protection over the evil one of them, but he's not praying for their escape. He is praying for their embrace, that they would embrace the things that God has for them, even in the midst of their pain. What will his disciples need in order to have their direction set to embrace the circumstances in front of them and not to escape them? When you're going through something hard, how do you make that shift to embrace what you're looking at instead of trying to escape it? Two quick things. You need to understand who you are, and you need to understand why you are here. You need to understand who you are, and you need to understand why you are here to get direction for your life. Verse 17 it says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify, that's kind of a churchy word. Um, let's define it a little bit. Because what does that mean? If I ask you, what does sanctify mean? What does that mean? It literally means to, to set apart, dedicated to God. So what Jesus is praying for his disciples, that they would be set apart, dedicated to God by your truth, your word is is truth. The way we know who we are to get our direction when we are in hard circumstances is to know who we are based on what the Bible says. Do you know who you are when you are in hard circumstances, when things are challenging for you? Are you getting who you are from what people tell you, from your annual report, from social media? Are you getting who you are by what Jesus says is true about you. You need to know who you are, and the disciples needed to know who they were as they began to walk out their faith after Jesus leaves. And the second thing, you need to understand why you are here. Let's look at verse 18. It says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Just as the Father sends Jesus into the world, to love and to care and to rescue, he sends his disciples into the world to love and to care and to rescue and to point people back to him. Even in the midst of the hard circumstances, do you understand why you are doing what you are doing? The disciples needed to know that. How does the father send the son, even in this verse, he's saying, listen, the father sent me, so now I am sending them. How does the father send the son? A couple things that we see in the narrative of Jesus as he steps into the scene and begins his public ministry. Jesus is constantly, if you've been here a while, you see this, this constant pattern of Jesus as he interacts with other people. He's doing three things constantly throughout the gospels. He's looking He's paying attention. He's looking at people's eyes. He's looking at their situations. He's constantly being aware of what's around him. Are you aware of what's around you? He's looking. He has compassion. That looking leads to a compassionate heart. It leads to empathy for other people. It leads to hurting people. 
lot of times we don't want to look because we don't want to deal with what we're about to see. We need to look. We need to have compassion. And the third thing that we see in the Gospels is that Jesus acts. He does something about it. That is the model constantly in the life of Jesus. That needs to be the model constantly in our life. As you interact with your teammates, as you interact with your friends, as you interact with your coworkers, your spouse, are you constantly looking? Are you having compassion and are you acting? That's what our call is. That God calls us and Jesus is praying for his disciples to be focused, to have direction, to have mission in their life. Verse 19, as we kind of close, this last line that Jesus prays before he shifts from just his disciples to the broader church in verse 20. He says this in verse 19. For them I sanctify myself. Again, I set myself apart for God that they too may truly be sanctified. What is Jesus saying here? Again, imagine the disciples listening into the conversation. Jesus is saying he's going to set himself apart for God so that we can be set apart for God. What is Jesus getting at? He's getting at where he drives, and ultimately what happens in the next couple of chapters is his move towards death, towards the cross, that he is set apart, the Lamb of God set apart for the sacrifice of the world, that there's no other sacrifice that could set us up to be set apart for God except for the cross. That's the only way we can be made right with God again. And Jesus in this moment is praying as he is about to move to the cross, that we too would die to ourselves. We would accept his gift. We'd be reminded of the gift. If we're about to take the cup and the bread and be reminded of his sacrifice for us, that we can move through our life with protection, with joy, with direction. We don't have to be confused and turned around because Jesus is praying for us. Let's pray. Father, thanks that we get the opportunity to listen in on this conversation that you have with your Father, Jesus. Thank you that you are aware of the next steps that your disciples are going to take, and you're aware of the next steps that we are going to take, even as a church, as we're going to see next week what you are praying for us even now. Pray that we would heed these words. Pray that we would learn from them as we have things going on and conversations going on this week that we could focus ourselves on you, that we would obey, that we would believe, that we would know that you're praying for our protection, that we would know that you desire joy and we find it in your word and in you, and that we would know what direction we need to be moving as we look to love others, as we look to look at them and have compassion on them and act in a way that would honor you and glorify you. Help us do it this week, Lord. Be with us, empower us by your spirit to enable us, just like we saw in Acts 4, be men that are bold and women that are bold, that people would look at us and they would say, they've been with Jesus. Pray that that would be true. We ask it in your name. Amen.